We are trailblazers. We are scientists. We are diplomats. We are warriors. We are protectors. We are healers. We are pioneers. We are explorers. We are family. And we are the crew of the USS Arabella, boldly going where no one has gone before. Hello, and welcome to The Ready Room, the Trexan sci-fi microcast. I'm Jen, and I play Commander Cyril. And this is Kenny. I play Captain Nathan Quinn of the USS Arabella. On today's briefing, we have RPG Protocol, the story so far, which we will read every post, and our final thoughts. Diagnostic complete. Initiating RPG Protocol. For today's RPG Protocol, we want to discuss uh, the current storyline and wrapping things up. Mm-hmm. Right? Yes. Yeah, I think um, the season has started off great, and I mean, it's, there's been some great, especially joint posts. I think this, mm-hmm. of, of all seasons, this season has really been made up of, of huge amounts of joint posts, and they're just, they're just awesome joint posts. Um, but it seems like people are starting to get busy, and uh, the RPG, I think we had like maybe seven posts this week. So it is slowing down. And we're thinking about taking a month off just to, to recoup and to rebuild the creative juices um, in this time when everyone's really busy. Because if you continue to do something when you're starting to get burned out on it, because how long have we been doing this now? It's almost – it's over a year now, oh, right? Oh, definitely over a year. year and a half. And and I'm and you and I've been doing it since day one, and so have a couple of members on yeah. our on our boards. But I have been doing it almost every day, yeah, just to keep the interest up and the enthusiasm going. And I and I'm afraid that if I get if I continue doing that for too much longer, I'm gonna get completely tired of it. Yeah, and I don't want to. I love doing this. But everybody needs to take a little break and stand back a little bit and and rest. Yeah, and um, creatively. I need rest. <laughs> so I think and, – and usually in between seasons, we do have like a week or two break in between. So we're making it a month instead of just two weeks, which will help, I think, in, in you know, when people come back from their vacations or their honeymoons. Congratulations, Hawkeye. Yes. Um, then they'll be refreshed and ready to go. And yeah. that's really what we need. But, but before we do do that, we need to finish this story. And I think about two weeks is the deadline I want to set for doing that because this story has been going on for a long time. Yeah. I, actually, it, I think that's good because if we go two weeks, it'll probably be the end of June. Mm-hmm. And then we take July off. Yes. And then we come back nice and fresh in August. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think timing-wise, that, that would be nice. And we have some new some people who are interested in joining the RPG, and that'll give them time to do a little research on our characters, the profiles, maybe read some of the past seasons. Yeah. Uh, and anybody who's listening who's been playing with the idea of doing that, this is your opportunity to catch up, you know, and to see what's been going on, who these characters are, and how you can make one that fits in with the story. So, but but don't be a you know, don't be worried that the ready room is going to continue in some form during that that break. We're considering, you know, having discussions about 
um, the new storyline that we'll be starting and also doing little features on the backstories of some of the, the characters that we have um, in the RPG. That's some of our ideas so far. But yep. anyway, that's that's what the, uh, the thought is. <laughs> Great. So I guess that would uh, conclude our RPG protocol. Accessing library computer data. Initiating the story so far. Enter when ready. Okay, for the story so far, we have decided, instead of just kind of briefly going over everyone's post, Jen did an awesome job last time, and I know people really enjoyed it, as I did as well, <laughs> um, th- where, where we read every single post that has been posted. So what we're going to do is we actually asked for some help from our fellow forum RPG members, and along with Jen and I, we are going to read every post that has been posted since the last Ready Room broadcast. So, take it away, guys. This is a post by In Stitches, read by Jen. Mackie jogged a little to keep up with Savril. The terrific child moved quickly, as did the Vulcan pursuer. From a distance, she could smell the Hoska fruit, its sweet, sour scent not dissimilar from the yellow fruit that grew in the mating preserves on her home planet. But unlike the yellow fruit... With the complex nuances from tree to tree and bite to bite, the hoska sounded one note, one strong, rich note. This was unknown to Mackie in the natural world. Could this be evidence of cloning? It was certainly worth investigating. But how to obtain samples? She had none of the metalized ceramic currency that the crowd was exchanging for the rapidly diminishing supply of spiny scarlet fruit. She looked down at her costume, Nothing of obvious worth to trade. So she did what she did well. She sped up, ostensibly chasing her commander. She allowed the long, split tunic to spread wide and catch on the vendor's wagon. This, in turn, caught her. She let her weight carry her forward, and she sprawled into the dirt, dragging the short, terrific merchant down with her. Hoskafruit reigned around them. Two relatively unharmed pieces rolled close, and she quickly tucked them into her pocket before turning to the bemused man. Oh, thank you, sir. She blew out a minor version of the seduction scent used earlier. You saved me from a terrible fall. He stood with a scowl, his face darkening under the deep blue. The vendor was just beginning to wind up for a good scolding when he caught a whiff of her pheromone mix. Miss, he toyed with the fertility symbol he wore. You knocked over my fruit stand. I think a little apologies in order. We can't let all of this spilled fruit go to waste. He picked up two of the fruits and held them suggestively. Mackie smiled and swallowed, thinking hard. She had to come up with a strategy to unman the obviously worked-up merchant when Karrarth appeared at her side. What business do you have with my servant? he demanded. His eyebrows lowered, making an already imposing appearance absolutely frightening. Back to business, the merchant shook the dirty hoska fruit at Mackie. She upset my cart. I have a business to maintain, he whined. Karath placed his hands on his hips. His hands pushed out the dark green cape, making him appear even larger. Then keep it out of the way of travelers. From out of nowhere, Karath held a coin under the man's nose. For your troubles. The man snatched the coin and jammed it into a pouch at his waist. He turned away and began to redisplay his wares, grumbling. But she wore no mark. 
The crowd closed in around him again, willing to bargain for the fallen fruit, as Mackie and Kararth hurried to find their comrades. This is a post by Jen. Read by Jen. After being diverted by a merchant peddling fertility fruit, Savril lost sight of the juvenile within the diverse palette of painted people. Pausing briefly to scan the crowd, the Vulcan stood amongst them, like an obstinate boulder in a raging river as they streamed against her. Some grumbled angrily, while others made lewd observations as they brushed past. Preoccupied by her mission, she ignored them all. Just when Savril thought she had lost their guide in the sea of celebratory people, she glimpsed their guide standing on a crate of animals waving fiercely at her team. The Cerulean child waited for them to draw near, before bounding from her perch and dashing away once again. Though Savril enjoyed a challenge, this particular game was highly illogical and becoming old very quickly. She was about to leave the child to her game when the girl emerged from the densely packed crowd before them. Savril hastened her steps as the teasing tot wove her way through the sea of boots and bare feet. This way, encouraged the girl. A moment later, the team found themselves at the foot of a craggy flight of outdoor stairs. They scaled them quickly. The chase abruptly ended as Savril topped the steps, clinging tightly to the leg of a man who towered ominously over her jade pursuer. The girl proclaimed proudly, Here he is. Now, where's my candy? This is a joint post between Star Trek Fanatic 5 and Jen. Read by Jen. 98. 99. <sighs> the winded trill fell back to the mat. Come on, Doctor, one more, Nick said with a large smile. Ryla smirked at the lieutenant. Don't wimp out on me now, he said. Oh, all right. No need to get pushy. She managed one more sit-up as he held her feet. Still sitting, she thanked him and leaned back to brace herself on the palms of her hands. Tilting her head to one side, the bright-eyed Trill asked, So, do you work out every morning at this time? Took moved to sit cross-legged on the mat beside her. Yep, he replied as he tossed her a towel. Great, can you hold my feet and call me a wimp tomorrow? Sure, if you'll do the same for me, he laughed. Done, said Ryla, holding out her hand. The two shook. Then Nick stood and helped the much shorter officer to her feet. Well, time to get ready for my shift. I'm going to drop in on our captain. I know he's avoiding me, but I promise to keep an eye on him, and that's exactly what I intend to do. <laughs> Good luck, Took laughed as Ryla exited the gym. She smoothed her uniform and took a breath. It wasn't like her to come to the bridge without an invitation, but it was her duty to care for the crew, and the captain of the Arabella was not exempt. The door opened on the bridge, but Ryla hesitated to leave the turbo lift. A few bridge officers turned their eyes in her direction, and after a moment, the captain did the same. I assume you're here to wave that device over me again, he smiled. As I've said before, doctor, I'm fine. Ryla shook her head slowly at his stubbornness, and he shook his at her persistence. Yes, I'm sorry, Captain. I just want to ensure that you are free of any residual effects. We're not entirely certain that Taras caused the episode which necessitated your return to the ship. She waited for an invitation to step out of the lift. He read her thoughts and waved her onto the bridge. You're always welcome on my bridge, Dr. Dritt, he said. I'll promise to make it quick, sir. She produced a tricorder and scanned her patient, who kept his seat. 
The gentle whirring of her tricorder merged readily with the melodious ambiance of the Arabella's bridge. Her ears found the harmony enchanting, and an inherent smile pressed dimples into her cheeks in response to their song. As she absorbed the tone of her surroundings, the doctor examined the readouts on her scanner with interest. Their determined captain's biosigns told her that he was perfectly healthy. Ryla's eyes wandered from the tricorder to the chair that he sat in. The large, padded armrest seemed to offer the guest of honor a welcoming embrace. The chair's gunmetal gray, ribbed leather lining appeared particularly supple and beckoned her to touch its soft surface. She had heard the command chair was the most comfortable perch on the Arabella, or any other ship for that matter, and she wondered if the rumor was true. When the whirring ceased, Nathan looked up from his pad and caught Ryla studying his chair. Well, am I going to live, doctor? He inquired playfully. Yes, you're fine, she said as she crossed her arms. I've been trying to tell you that, he replied. Nathan heard her thoughts and smiled. Have a seat, doctor. He rose and gestured to the chair. The trill's doe-colored eyes beamed at the offer. Am I that legible, she asked. Nathan nodded. You wear your thoughts on your sleeve. Please, have a seat. But don't get too comfortable. The trill's fingers graced the arm of the chair as if testing the temperature of a bath before she lowered herself into it. The cushioning gave slightly under her light weight as the diminutive woman met the yielding surface. Just as she started to relax, it struck her that she was sitting in the seat that housed the brain of the Arabella's central nervous system. The doctor thought of the job that came with a chair and decided that the splendid comfort was an insignificant compensation for the awesome responsibilities which rested squarely on the captain's shoulders. Ryla rose from the chair. Thank you, sir. It truly is the best seat in the house, but it comes with a lot of baggage. I don't envy you. She took a few steps towards the lift. You will let me know if you have any more headaches, won't you? Quinn smiled and gave her a quick nod. Of course, doctor. Thank you for making a house call. Her smile broadened as she entered the turbo lift and turned to face the door. Anytime, sir. This is a joint post between Jen, Just X, Brian CD, and Hawkeye Meds. Read by Brian. Nareem jumped as a stocky, terrassic male brought the large, wedge-shaped butcher knife down on the neck of a squawking, feathered creature. A heartbeat later, and its green and blue-crested head tumbled into the thick, red mud that formed at the base of the butcher block. She blinked in horror as the bird's beak opened and closed reflexively, as if struggling to warn the ensign to run. The oblivious butcher continued dressing the animal brusquely by plucking its pretty plumage, Feathers stuck to his hairy, callous fingers and floated in the air about him as he worked perfunctorily. This way, said Lieutenant Commander James as he gently took her by the arm and led her away from the gruesome sight. To say that she was suffering from culture shock would have been an understatement, for this was Noreen's first visit to any alien worlds other than Earth. Within the Federation, the use of replicators had long ago eliminated the need to slay animals, and though the young Laurelian was aware of such practices... It was quite another story to witness it with one's own eyes. At his words, the young science officer regained her wits and continued to scan the crowd for anything of interest to their investigation. Against his better judgment, Commander James found himself wandering the market of the stone and wood alien city without even a third of his team around. They had been held up in their descent from the mountain and they needed to cover more ground. Splitting the team to three smaller teams was the only option to speed their covering of the ground. He and Tevawash comprised one of the groups. 
Peterson, Margon, and Whitco comprise the second team, leaving DeCallan and Dunn as the final group. He and Tevawash were designated the science team, and part of their mission was to investigate possible sources of technology or advanced scientific information. Margon was placed in charge of the medical team. Their responsibility was simple. Investigate anyone that might be a non-native in disguise due to discrepancies in their biology or their behavior. DeCallan's team had the dubious honor of searching the entire city for any sort of physical signs that the missing scientists were in the city. Given the large gathering of people for the festivals, they would need to move quickly in their search. DeCallan and Dunn picked their way through a small cluster of rocks. Suddenly, out of the repetitive scenes stood the city. Sounds could be heard coming from the milling people. Dunn walked forward and observed the areas they were ordered to search. It, uh, it looks busy, sir. DeCallan walked behind Dunn to take a look. He took a deep breath. Hmm, I feel, Ensign, we may have a long day and night ahead of us. I suggest we have a quick bite to eat. We may not know when we next time we get the chance. DeCallan turned and sat down behind the rocks and searched in his pack for food sachets, leaving Dunn to keep watch. This is a joint post between Hawkeye Meds, Jen, and Brian C.D. Read by Hawkeye Meds. Ensign Dunn stood several yards away watching a small child play with colourful toy rings near a cliff edge. Behind him, Lieutenant DeCallan emptied the food sachets and studied the packets with dubious eyes. Dunn smiled to his chief, who was inspecting the rations with a disgusted look. Is that edible? asked the young Ensign sarcastically. Josie sniffed the bowl. Well, you'll have to do to find something better. Ensign Dunn watched with concern as a child lost one of her hoops over the rock face. Kneeling, he called out, Hello! What have you got there? As she looked towards him, his eyes registered movement in the trees ahead of them and stood up to have a better look. The child, who had been his focus, blurred as his eyes shifted to the seething beast that charged out of the underbrush. Hot breath steamed out of its nostrils and blood oozed from a wound on its back. Dunn stole a quick glance back to the frozen child as the animal's hooves began to scrape the dusty ground. It bowed its three razor-sharp tusks to the ground and glared at them over a wet snout which dripped long strings of tawny mucus. The young man slowly began to move towards the child who stood between he and the fuming creature. The beast sounded a roar that erupted in the valley around them and clouds of dirt were flung into the air as its hooves vengefully charged the defenceless child. Instinctively, Ensign Dunn did the same. The family's chief of security jumped up with a start when he heard the roar and turned his eyes just in time to see Dunn heading towards the child. Lieutenant de Cannon then levelled his gaze upon the rampaging beast. It was going to be close. Dunn's strong hands managed to grab the child and he tossed her to the safety before landing with a thud upon the hard red clay. He rolled onto his side and lifted his head in time to see the beast tearing towards him. The angry hooves were unavoidable. Closing his eyes, the ensign waited for the inevitable pain that the three-ton monster would visit upon him. This is a post by In Stitches, read by myself. Something about the smell of the magician reminded Mackie of an incident in her past. Her mind danced between that and the Hoska fruit straight from the Curatop Mountains. While the rest of the team were involved in discussion, Mackie could hardly keep her attention on her surroundings. During her first semester at Starfleet Academy, she had attended various biology classes, but one of her favorites was with an intriguing scientist, Dr. Eric Helen. Mackie had never met a Denoblian before, and she was fascinated with the facial ridges cresting her cheekbones, which exaggerated her every expression. She had taught an intensive workshop on cloning, 
which featured her work with Flora from seven different worlds. The Denoblian woman had insisted that her technique was so simple she could teach it to anyone. Cloning is nothing new. It occurs in nature. I call to mind the Terran shrimp, the Bolian tribo yeast. The list is endless. And then there's the simple cutting method that has been used since time immemorial. There was a murmur from the assembled students and she smiled, a wider smile than was usual among the assembled species. What, you didn't realize your ancestors had access to cloning technology? They did. Now my technique is a little more than refinement and acceleration of that very same process. Dr. Eric Cullen looked around the room at the otherworldly variety of plants and spotted a Terran ballerina rose. Ah, Gyla Lithimeri. Using simple tools and a biocomputer, Dr. Kellen took a sample and rapidly replicated the cutting. You see, I'm asking the rose to create its own clone, rather than doing the work myself. She set the medium green stem in a vial of growth accelerant and then watched it as it sprouted narrow elliptical leaves and rooted tentacles budding a purple-pink flower, which opened into four narrow pink petals surrounding delicate white pestules. She took it out and matched it to a flower on the parent plant. Mackie drank in the intense scent of a rapidly maturing plant. A perfect clone. It wilted in her hand. There was silence from the assembled students as she laughed. Well, almost perfect. The students let out a collected breath and laughed a bright citrus fragrance. As I've just demonstrated, growth accelerant technology still has a ways to go. In the field, I use a much slower and much more stable medium. This level of maturity, she brandished the dropping rose, would be achieved in less than a month, and it would be normal. You can see how this would assist famine-threatened populations and terraforming projects. Let's discuss Apple. Mackie had interrupted at this point. Carefully moving her mouth along with the translator, why not just use biomimic gel? Then you would get a mature plant right away. You mean besides the restrictions on its use within the Federation? That's hard to say, and certainly worth some thought. Dr. Kellen raised golden triangle eyebrows and nodded to herself. Mackie had picked up a sweet, creamy smell of speculation. Perhaps the research could be approved. She made a note on the pad on the work table and resumed the discussion. Now about applications of cloning technology. This is a joint post between Jen, Brian CD, and Hawkeye Meds. Read by Hawkeye Meds. Lieutenant DeCannon pumped his arms furiously as his legs carried him at a dead run towards Ensign Dunn. He flicked his gaze from the young security officer to the rampaging beast and back to Christopher Dunn, who was propped up on one arm, facing down the monster. The fiend bellowed once more as it closed in on its victim. He took all he had, but Joseph willed his feet to move faster and managed to shoulder barge Dunn out of the way just in time. A tusk narrowly missed Christopher's right shoulder, but the remaining two dug deep into the Callan's abdomen. The animal continued to parallel ahead with the chief of security impaled on his tusks. Screaming with pain, Joseph smashed his fists down on the beast's head. Red dust blanketed them as the Callan continued to beat the wild-eyed animal. All he managed to do was slow the beast to a trot. It turned its head, and Joseph, back towards Dunn and the helpless child. Though his mind was muzzy, Lieutenant DeCallan understood what the animal was thinking. He wouldn't stop until they were all dead. Despite the damage it caused to himself, 
Joseph stretched towards the animal's back, plunging the dagger-like tusks deeper into his core. Grasping the neck of the beast with one hand, he stabbed his free fist repeatedly into the wound on the animal's back. "'Not today, ye beauty!' shouted the gallon. The animal began to weave around as it ran. Pain clouded its vision as it staggered towards the lurking precipice. Racing to aid his superior, Dunn dived towards the edge just as the animal toppled over the cliff and plummeted to the valley below, with the skewered lieutenant struggling against him. Ensign Dunn scrambled to his feet as the crying child came to his side. No! he cried, as the little girl, now in his arms, wailed louder still. His heart thumped hard in his chest as he crawled forward and looked over the edge. This is a post from Omra, read by Mark and Rowe. Shin paced restlessly back and forth in the spartanly decorated common area, looking nervously at the door to Dravan's quarters. She would rather face a cornered razor tooth than what awaited her inside that room. The thought of some arcane alien relic getting inside her mind terrified her. She stopped and looked at the computer display on the end table. The chronometer showed it was nearly time for the ceremony. She groaned, and her tail thrashed with nervous energy. A musical voice spoke to her from above. Your aura is troubled, friend Shin. Do you not wish to help your friend with her ceremony? She looked up to her friend who hung from the ceiling like a beautiful crystal chandelier. I want to help her, Keltic, but I am frightened. The Hamalki's harp-like voice questioned her. Are you afraid of the telepathic crystal involved in the ceremony, or of what you will be asked to share in return? Shin winced at the delicately worded accusation. The Fenril's hands brought up the small satchel bound in ornate pasella and fleetfoot hide to her chest. She looked at it with a mixture of trepidation and mournful reverence. It held within it not just items from her past, but memories. Memories she wished to keep in prison within the valise, tucked away deep inside a dresser hidden from her view or any threat of painful introspection. The lyrical sounds of Hamaki's words brought her back to reality. She is counting on you, Shin. She needs another with which to perform the ceremony, and you are the only person she trusts with this intimate responsibility. She has suffered silently a long time and needs this ceremony to bring closure. And I believe one of the reasons she chose you is because she sensed within you a sorrow similar to her own. The Hamaki's words tore at her heart. She clenched the satchel closer to her. The involuntary reflexive action drove the familiar sense of Jaron and Taylon from the inner lining upward toward her sensitive nostrils. The smells triggered a flood of suppressed emotions which drove home even harder the truth of her friend's words. She dabbed at her eyes and then slowly walked toward over to her friend's doorway. She gathered her resolve and steadied herself exhaling loudly and slowly before pressing the door chime. Dravan's overly loud response to the door chime bellied her own nervousness about the upcoming event. Come in? She smiled at how her friend's voice nearly cracked, sounding like a child going through puberty. When the door opened, she saw that indeed the Elaram was at least as nervous as her, and for some perverse reason, the feline officer actually found comfort in their shared anxiety. As she entered the threshold, the Elaram began preparations. Shin stopped before tripping the door sensors to close, and looked at over her shoulder to Halamalki and mouthed a silent thank you to her. This is a post by Star Trek Fanatic 5, read by myself. Quinn strolled down the corridors on his way to engineering. It's been unusually quiet aboard the ship, 
The away teams had been down on the planet for 26 hours, and the Arabella was in a high orbit. There wasn't much going on, so Nathan left Lieutenant Zurim in command of the bridge and was on his way to surprise Nick with a lunch invitation. Nathan entered engineering and immediately spotted Nick over by the warp core. As he approached, several crewmen stood at attention. Quinn smiled and nodded as he passed. Nick looked up, and a broad smile came across his face. Looking around, he saw several crewmen glance at each other. Nick's smile disappeared instantly. Captain, I wasn't expecting you. Everything is running smoothly here, sir. Nick said very quickly. Quinn smiled. I'm sure everything's under control. I was actually going to see if you felt like grabbing some lunch. Took's smile returned. Of course, Captain. Quinn raised an eyebrow. This is a post from Omra. Read by Brian. Shin stood and admired the simple and minimalistic style of decorating the Aloran had used for her quarters. The geometric artwork which dotted the walls was curiously attractive to her, and yet did not draw attention to themselves. They instead complemented one another and formed a comfortable and embracing pattern of interest throughout the room. Not at all what the Fenrell had expected. It seemed a complete contrast to the vibrant personality of the person which inhabited the room. She had expected it to be more along the lines of the kaleidoscopic ceremonial robe which the dark-skinned Eloran wore. It was a fascinating construction of layered translucent fabrics which interacted with one another, forming colorful moray patterns as she moved about the room. Draven noticed that Satchel's shin was carrying. She gestured to it. Are those the... she searched for the right word... items for the ceremony? Shin solemnly nodded. The Aloran seemed to brighten at the fact that her friend had been vigilant enough to follow her instructions, and even seemed to be taking the ritual seriously. She pointed to a corner of the room where an elaborately carved edifice had been erected. You may place your collection beside the shrine. The Fenrel walked over to the corner and gazed in subdued admiration at the artfully crafted shrine. She saw an empty spot to the left side of the shrine. To the right side was a red velvet sack tied with a gold metallic cord. Shin mused that it must contain her friend's collection of items, so she sat to her own collection in the spot her companion had provided for her. In front of the shrine were two unlit wax candles. Between them, a small silver vase contained a spray of incense sticks also, as of yet, unlit. And perched on top of the shrine, a clear glass vessel contained colored and perfumed oil which was being ever so slowly fed to an ignited wick floating atop the oil on a lily pad of pewter. Her eyes reflected upon the ornate patterns and detailed relief carvings on the shrine. It did not have the appearance of a mass-produced item. She ran a finger across one of the carved figures. She could feel the faint tool marks left from the carving implement. That was not a commercially produced religious item. This was the fruit born out of a labor of love. Her mind began to wander if perhaps Draven herself had made this. Was her newfound friend a closet artist? As she watched the Aloran open the door to her closet and unlock a large wooden chest, she realized that there were indeed perhaps a great many things she did not know about her friend. But if the ceremony did what she had implied, that would soon all change. Command codes verified. Activating final thoughts. So, final thoughts. What are our final thoughts this week? Final thoughts. Let's discuss a little bit about what we see for the upcoming uh, season, season eight. Okay. Just a little bit. Just give them a little taste. A little taste. I mean, that's I all we that... have, but it's a little taste. Yeah. I think we really developed it further than. No, it's just a con. It's just like a an 
a genre. Yeah. Really, yeah. if you can call it that. I think that we should jump in with both feet and do the Mirror Universe. Woohoo! It would be a lot of fun to to play the meanies or, or whatever. <laughs> An alternate and, character. And I think it would also be fun for the Ready Room to have alternate music to kind of <laughs> mirror the um, awesome music they played on Enterprise when they did their uh, Mirror Universe episodes. Yeah. So... It would be fun, I think. Yeah. And I think it, it would probably also attract a lot of people who are maybe sitting on the fence and maybe just considering doing it but not taking that chance mm-hmm. and sending us email to let us know they're interested. Yeah. Uh, this, this way, I think, would, would give lots of people opportunities to, to play in our sandbox. Yeah, and I think, <laughs> yeah. And I think it would definitely rejuvenate because, I mean, we're going to be coming off of a month break when we do this. Mm-hmm. And I think this is going to be – I mean, I know everyone was really excited when we discussed this idea in our previous Skype call. Um, and we've been waiting for the right time to do it, and both Jen and I feel that that season eight is definitely going to be our Mirror Universe season. Uh, mm-hmm. Still not sure on details yet, but uh, we have some ideas. But uh, And we have, we'll have plenty of time to develop those ideas in detail. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And that I think is going to be important for this next season is to you know we tried the the open ended approach this past season, and I think I'm going to abandon that and go back to an outline just so that people will have a roadmap because that seems to be how a lot of our writers work best. Yeah, yeah. They want to know where the boundaries are and how far they can go before they cross that boundary. Yeah, you know. Yeah. So. Cool. That's what we're doing. That sounds good. So I think that's going to do it for this ready room. This is Kenny. And this is Jen. Alien Frequency is closed. The ready room theme and other RPG music was composed by Rick Moyer. Read more about the adventures of the USS Arabella at treksandsci-fi.com. <laughs>